Thank you. Uh, just a couple of things. First of all, I bring you greetings from my wife and family and our assembly because we've prayed about these particular meetings. And um, also, in the past, uh, on behalf of Tepsi, uh, we'd like to thank you for housing them in the years past and being so generous to them. And uh, particularly, thank you for taking care of my son, Jonathan, who I'm happy to report uh, is doing well and is in university and pursuing accounting. So those of you that know him and have cared for him, I want to say thank you. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is um, just about uh, uh, some things coming up that are not on your schedule. You didn't know this. Brian didn't know these things, so I have to help him. But um, one of the things that's coming up that you would really, really enjoy is what they used to call the Rise Up Conference. Have you ever been to one of those? Nobody? I have? Okay, good, good. Well, listen, I might have mentioned to the guys in Texas that the guys in Florida could bring more people than them. And uh, they're up for the challenge. But it's uh, December 27th through the 30th. It's in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And it is, um, uh, it is uh, designed to be uh, a large conference, and I'm hoping we can break 1,000. That's my goal. Um, the reason why I mention it to you is because it's really strong for the young people. We have asked Nate Bramson and Brady Collier to head up evening meetings with the young people. We've asked um, uh, Keith Kaiser and uh, um, Alan Gamble uh, to come and Nate Bramson to come and be plenary sessions. There's a host of seminars that are there. It's one of the most incredible times you'll find. If you ever heard a thousand people singing Blessed Assurance, you say, wow, I think I'd like to come back to one of these. Um, uh, you want to go online, uh, you want to look up uh, Believer's Bible Conference. We had to change the name because we became a nonprofit organization because we weren't before. <laughs> and when we did that, the government said we can't use the title Rise Up. But everybody knows us by the Rise Up Conference. Just give you an example. We only meet every other year, and the last time we met two years ago, we had Brother John Lennox from the UK here. Now, you may not know Dr. Lennox, but he is a debater in the apologetic world, and he was debating Dawkins, and so he had all of uh, his stuff was on YouTube. By the, end of the, by the time I went home, every one of my 30-year-old and below people had listened to all of his debates on YouTube. So it was really encouraging in that way. Um, so we would invite you, we'd suggest that you would come. If you can't come, send someone else, but I think it would be most encouraging for you. That's my only advertisement. If, Brian, you could put that in your announcements, that would be great. Just kidding. I'm kidding. Where'd he go? He left. All right. Let's pray. We have some things to discuss. Our Father, with uh, a tremendous sense of our dependency on the one who actually creates bread, the one who is the bread, the one who nourishes us as bread, we come. We, we calm our hearts, we still our souls in the presence of our God. And we'd like to ask you through your spirit to minister to us. It, it, it says in your word that unless you wash our feet, we cannot have a part of you. It's a necessary thing to have our feet cleansed. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't been with us the last few days, we've been doing a little seminar on marriage. And so on uh, Thursday evening, we met with the young couples or those who are interested. And uh, we had a certain topic in mind there, and, and that was dealing with the aspect of the physicality of marriage. And then on Friday evening, we had a couple of sessions that laid, number one, the foundation as described in Genesis chapters two, uh, Genesis chapters one and two. And then we also talked about, well, what happened to it all? What went, what went wrong? And we spent a lot of time in Genesis chapter three. Yesterday, we spent about three hours together. I'm so sorry the audience had to endure it because it was more like four hours, but nonetheless, 
three hours as the official time. And, and we spent time looking at how the curse and all the, that, that which sin brought in can be reversed. And so we looked at Ephesians and we traced back the concepts of headship and why it was so important and why it was assaulted and how it's germane or important to the marital setting. Then we also went over to 1 Peter chapter 3 and we used that as an illustration to show exactly how it works out. So we had lots of discussion, lots of textual information, lots of uh, hopefully exegesis, exposition of it all. Now, to, uh, we, we then turned to, to try to make things a little bit more practical by the end of yesterday and we looked at these three words, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And we tried to discuss them in, certain ma- in a certain way and we talked about understanding one from, a, from their physical side, you know, their, their physical limitations or their strengths, understanding someone from their soul and understanding someone from their spirit, that is their spiritual dimension. And when that happens, we emphasized how important it is to allow the, the intimacy factor to really augment that, allowing a, a man and a woman to grow close. Now, I'd like to finish that section by a thing we call communication. And I, and, and I want to just take a quick survey. You don't have to raise your hand, but if you would, that would be nice. How many of you find that you communicate perfectly in your relationships with your spouse? Oh, I see. We have. Oh, th- good. Are you even married? I didn't think so. <laughs> you're good on this. Man, you're excellent. Uh, you should come up. <laughs> You see, communicate. I, I want to tell you this story. So we're doing some marriage counseling, counseling at a restaurant, and it was really quite humorous at, at the beginning. Not really in the beginning, but afterwards it was humorous. And so here they are. There's this prospective bride and prospective bridegroom, and they're they're very polite, very mannered, you know. And as they're discussing, they had obviously had a tiff in the car, you know, a disagreement. And they had, and then we were next, and so we meet them at the restaurant, and we're sitting down. And they, and they were being very cordial to us and to themselves. And, and I said, so how have you been and what's gone on? And they said some small talk. And I said, well, did anything we discussed last week show up this week? Well, that was the question, right? And they go, well, you know, we had a little disagreement. That's, it's funny when you're doing marriage counseling or postmarital counseling. It's always not as big as it really was. Well, we had this little problem. Not a thing. It's okay. It's on. It's like huge. And so they're they're sitting there. This is not too bad. And I said, oh, well, tell me what happened. So he goes first, and and he gives me his deal. And I'll never forget, the the prospective bride sits there so politely. Shaking the head, eye contact, the whole thing. Mm, Yes, yes. So I'm expecting her... uh, input and perspective to have something that dovetailed off of what he said. And I'll tell you, this is what happened. He did his part. She waited. And then she, and I mean, it is like in two different planets. <laughs> Nothing. I mean, it's like, were you even there? Was this the same story? Is this the same guy? And her perspective. Was, and so he did the same thing to her. Looked at her. I shook the head. Gestures. And, and, and after she finished, he launched in. Nothing to do with what she said. I felt like I was watching a political debate. Right? And back and forth, back and forth. And you know what was happening? As each person ping-ponged back and forth, what happened was each person's volume was getting louder. Yeah, I don't know if you know this, but when you're arguing, you actually say the same thing over and over. You just say it louder, think you made more sense. You never do that. All you do is get louder. And so what I did, I just, and now we're getting louder and louder and louder. And they're both being very polite. But boy, they're getting intense. And so fine. And we're in a restaurant. And I go, be quiet. Just like that. They went, Ooh. I said, you guys aren't communicating. You're just politely waiting for the other person to finish while you formulate what you're going to say. You're not even listening to each other. Does that ever happen in anybody's relationships of marriage? Like, mm-hmm, amen, amen, thank you. All right. That made my wife and I discuss communication. And I, I do this because it's a prelude to the next subject, which is conflict. And I know no one has any conflict, so it probably won't take us long to discuss that. But communication turns out to be a pretty important part in the scriptures and in general the Christianity. Now, having said this, I need to say this disclaimer. I am assuming... And therefore, I'm going to make a point of it, that the things we discuss are being heard by those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. 
I want to be very clear. If you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, that means that you have seen yourself as a sinner before God who has the right and the righteousness to make a judgment, an indictment against you. And that indictment was the indictment of death. That was the sentence. And God steps forward and shields you from the death and allows his own son to die in your place. Unless you've crossed that threshold of understanding, of, of repentance and how you used to think, and aligning yourself with God's thinking and receiving what he has done for you at the cross of Calvary, then I want you to know everything I said to you does not apply. It will not make sense. It will not, it will not, it will not uh, uh, give you any secrets to uh, your marital, uh, previous marriage, current marriage, or next marriage, or whatever, uh, wherever stage you're at. I want you to know that what I'm saying is predicated, built on, assumes a personal relationship with the God of the universe, and that happens in the person of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake. Do not assume you can walk in here today, not even know the Lord, the God of the Bible, who Jesus is and what he's done, and hear some message about communication and walk out of here and you're going to be happy. You'll be miserable. It is through Christ and Christ alone that everything we've said has any bearing. All right, now let's move on. So communication. All right, so one of the things that we, we noticed in this whole ordeal by my opening illustration was that um, we, sometimes we think communication is, uh, its purpose is for me to tell you what I'm thinking. Do you ever do that? I want you to know what I'm thinking, so I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking. But actually, communication is designed to understand what the other person is saying. It's a little bit of a different twist. Turn to James chapter 1, and you, uh, uh, you, can, uh, you can see this uh, idea embedded in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse, and I'm going to begin reading, uh, let's see, yes. Yeah, let's begin reading in verse 19. That'll be adequate for us. James chapter 1, verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. Now, we're going to talk about terms of communication in this verse. Slow to speak and slow to wrath. Now, think about that. Slow means, of course, its, it's interpretation is very straightforward, just means uh, at a lower pace. And, and quick means that you're a faster pace. But we usually change the rendering, and it goes like this. Let us be quick to speak and slow to hear. All right? And it's the exact opposite. In other words, communication is designed to impart information not only from your mouth, but also so that it's received. Many a times we're just interested in throwing the flames out of our mouth and, and getting it off our chest, and we don't care how it's received. But truthfully, Christianity is designed to always consider the other person. Remember the chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13? Doesn't think of yourself, but thinks of the other person. Christianity is predicated on that, and it's predicated on that to the point that even in your regular communication one to another, your words are not just to be an emotional outlet so you can just feel better, but actually to build someone up, that's your speech, edify, in such a manner that there is mutual understanding and that it's receivable. Let me tell you something. Have you ever, have you ever been awakened by a loud voice? It's time to get out of bed! I mean, that goes well, right? No, you want to kill a guy. And if you're savvy, you'll have, you know, a taser. I don't know. <laughs> the point is, the point is, is that we don't really think of communication like that. Now, the Lord said this. It was in my previous slide. I'll just refer back to it. He says, you know, oops. Come, let us reason together. We have some things we need to talk about. We want some mutual understanding. And your sins, though they be as scarlet, they'll be whiter than snow. In other words, he's saying um, there is a point here where we need to have some exchange and mutual understanding, not singular understanding or singular expression. And that couple, that's all they were focused on was not understanding each other, but they were trying to, of course, only express their self and let the chips fall where they may. That's a fundamental paradigm shift for us today. 
We see it all the time. And I reference the political world. That is true. They're in this debate. And the, and the, and the um, uh, coordinator, the, the master of ceremonies, asks a question. And he asks it to this fella. And, and he asks it to that lady. And what happens? They don't care about the question. They just say whatever they want anyway. Do you ever notice that? The question and the answer never follow. That's our typical cultural example of communicating. That's not how it works with God. If you notice that when you trace conversations in the Old Testament and in some in the New Testament where God is speaking, God heard everything Moses said. Well, why don't you send someone else? No, I'm going to send you. I can't speak. God heard every single word. He didn't answer some other ideas right with him. You see those conversations with Abraham. Is it, can, if there were but 50 righteous in the city, God didn't say, oh, can you repeat that? No, he caught it all. There was, that was, that's what happened with communication. God is expert at communication. How does he define a title of the Lord Jesus? The word of God. In other words, when I'm speaking to you, we'll have thousands of words in the last three days. And when God speaks, he speaks one singular word, and it's so dynamic, it comes in three dimensions, the Lord Jesus. That's brilliance, right? So communication is very, very fundamental to the heart of God, right? The word of God revealed, thus says the Lord. So we want to model that. That's what we want to do in our marriages. Now, the Proverbs has a lot to say about communication. And in a marital setting, I would like to emphasize some of these salient features. Number one, the man of understanding, our counsel is in the heart of man. And you can turn to this if you want, but I put it on the board for us. Counsel is in the heart of man like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. Do you know what I learned very first in my marriage? My wife is not as verbal as I am. She's a great writer, and when she wanted to say something to me, she'd write me a letter. The longer the letter, the worse the problem. <laughs> you, marry, you guys write that down. That's a big one, okay? But what I realized was that her natural ability to, on the fly, put thoughts into words and express them just like that, she didn't have. She would actually say to me when we were in, um, how should we say this, a discussion, you know, a heated discussion. And she would say to me, I can't compete with you. I'm not that good with my words. And so I would always win, right? Because I would outmaneuver her with words. And, and I realized that it's not about winning. Men, did you hear that? It's not about winning. What it is. Is about understanding. And if I had any wisdom at all, I would figure out how to put the bucket into the deep well of her heart and pull it out. You know what we call that? Dying to myself. That's what that is. And so I began to realize that, that as I listened to her and as she tried to express things, I would specifically uh, say, I think you're saying, now even if it hurt me, even if it was something that she didn't want to say that was going to be painful, I would say, I, are, you, are, you, are you saying I do this? She goes, yeah. And I, I tried to create an environment that was safe and non-confrontational and non-retaliatory, non-denial. How many brothers or sisters in this room, when something is brought to your attention that, that you don't want to admit, the first thing you do is you go, well, that's not really how it is. You ever say that? Well, it's not like you think. Let me tell you something. Don't defend on the first pass, right? Just draw it out. All right, so let's, oops. Oh, no, we had a problem. I thought I'd plug this in already. <laughs> Would you give me just two seconds here? Now, I really do need my slides because they have all the references for me. <laughs> well, let me, while this is warming back up, let me give you a couple of salient features about communication. There is a certain kind of methodology or timing in communication. I alluded to this in the proverb that says, it says, um, uh, a loud voice early in the morning will be rendered a curse. There's timing, 
right? You don't want to be that kind of individual that uh, um, uh, states things in, in a manner that um, uh, is just the wrong time. My, my, my wife was good at this. You know, I worked all day. I would come home, and I always had, maybe you have one of the children, they just love to be the bearer of news, whether it's good or bad. And so I'm not kidding. I worked all day, patience, blood, mess, everything. I'm worn out emotionally, physically. I walk in the door, the children, you know, and they're all around. It's like we're a football team. And one of them says, hey, Dad, and the refrigerator broke. We lost all the meat. <laughs> My wife, she goes, no, no, we talked about that. She's always smiling. We talked about that. We don't want to tell Daddy about the refrigerator in the car right now. <laughs> Timing, okay? Now that verse, I jumped ahead, is a word spoken in due season. Season is a timing term. Season is referencing a time element. How good it is at the right time. Other things about communication, for example, a suitable word. Suitable is a word that's a beautiful for the occasion. It's like apples of gold in the setting of silver. All right? Now, think about it. Brothers, I'm talking to you because I'm a brother and I, I do this kind of stuff. You know, thinking about the right time to say something, right? I am master at saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. <laughs> Did you ever hear my story? She's getting ready. Any of you women get ready on Sunday morning? Yes. And you have your time. <laughs> it's kind of sacred, actually. You might want to write that down, brothers. And, and I'll never forget, she's in there and she's doing the hair thing, you know? And she's combing hair, and she got the, don't tell her I told you this, but she got these, like, brushes, like six brushes in the hair. I'm thinking, you know, when, i tell you a secret. When we men see that, we're thinking, that looks like a half an hour. <laughs> Turns out that's, like, just before the finished product. I didn't know that. So I walk in, and I say to her, you give me an ETA on this here situation? <laughs> she takes her brush. She puts it down. You ever see that? What's that movie where they have the feelings? You know, the guy's going to put the foot down. When the woman puts the brush down, you're at DEPCON 5. And she tells me, I'll be ready when I'm ready. I didn't know her pretty white hand could get whiter. You know. Suitable. Suitability. Think about it. Right? All right, method, a loud voice in the morning uh, uh, is, uh, is the methodology involved. I alluded to that. But I'd like to mention this one right here, and it's, it's about um, the uh, uh, corrupt speech. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to be so blunt here, but we're going to have to be somewhat blunt. Let no corrupt communication uh, proceed out of your mouth except that which is good for edification you can render that word, increase one's potential, build up, right? Now, brothers, um, I, I work uh, and had worked in the emergency department. Do you know the emergency department is not an office? It's raw life. And I have people coming in, cursing and swearing and saying they're going to kill me. I, of course, have my succinylcholine in my intubation tube. <laughs> and I say, try. Where's James? Are you here, James? Yes, you write that down. Sucks in your colon. Keep it in your pocket. But um, the point is, is that that's my world. And cursing, swearing, yelling, screaming, emotional catharsis, violence. That's what I see every day, all day, or used to. I have found that that kind of language gets in your head, and you're not thinking about it. But I tell you, once in a while, what you heard at the workplace comes out through your mouth. All right? Now, I'm going to ask you men and ladies, is your communication corrupt? Because that damages the spirit of those around you, wife and children included. Right? I would be a foolish, sinful confessor, if I, or a, a stupid, foolish man, if I didn't tell you that sometime in my life, I've done that. I've done that. 
I want you to know, I think that is sin. Why do I say that? Because it says right there, corrupt communication. So communication is important. It's not only how you say it, when you say it, the right circumstance that you say it. It's also what you say and the manner that you say. It says this in Proverbs 16, 21, the sweetness of lips increases learning. I actually put all the references there. That's, pretty, that's a lot, right? Now, I learned this. When, when, when we have a, a busy family, and many of you are busy families, uh, there's always things that have to be done. And, and men, maybe you're like me, but I'll, I'll, I'll make the subtle assumption that my wife has more time than me. Do you ever do that, men? No, okay, maybe you don't. So I do. And so, help me out here, right? And so I'll say, hey, do you think you can call the electric company about the... No, she wants to help, right? She goes, sure, I'll call. Well, you go to work and she's like wrestling alligators and, you know, (laughs) kids are throwing up when they're like, you were healthy three seconds ago. You know, and, and then, you know, they come in and the toilet paper's hanging from and, and you're just like, stuff happens, okay? Comes at the end of the day, never got to call the electric company at all. And so I would come home, i say, for almost the first thing, which was my bad time, I said, hey, did you call the electric company? You know, of course, she's probably thinking, out of the 4,000 things I did today, no. You know, but she doesn't say that. My wife is a sensitive spirit, and she goes, oh, no. I'm sorry. She feels like she failed. Right? You know what I learned to do? Sweetness of lips. Well, what'd you do, Steve? You put on lipstick? No! (laughs) I did this. I said, did you happen to have a chance in your busy day to call the electric company? Now, what did I do just then? I gave her a reason to say I didn't have a chance. I said to her, did you happen to, and you're busy. In other words, I give you the fact that you've been crazy and you may not have been able to do that. So if you choose to use that reason, you're welcome to use it. I gave her a get out of jail free card. Huh? Now, don't you like that? Don't you? That's, really, that's really polite, isn't it? What you're doing in your communication is you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about the other person and how they're going to receive it. And what's going to happen? Can you build them up with your words? All right, you see that? Now, that day when I sat at that restaurant with my wife, and we watched, it was like we were in school. We were going, right? And we began to realize, I need to watch how I talk. I need to watch what I say. I'll tell you, what I didn't put up here is the hypocrisy of our speech. So we say one, and we do the other, Right? Now, that is a huge issue. You talk about exasperating children, stumbling your spouse. Live like that. I have known families, and you you forgive me if this is hurting you. I don't mean to. Where the husband had explosive expressions verbally of his temper. You have... Multiple piles of crippled humanity, children and wife around the house from all the explosiveness. And the next day, gets up, cooks everybody's breakfast, and acts like nothing happened. Listen, if that's your pattern, you should know something. Something did happen. And it happened on your watch with your mouth. And you caused a fire, and it's now still burning. You see that? This is big. And this kind of practicality, remember I talked to you, we're going to take the scriptures and we're going to bring them down, bring them down, and we're going to get to a practical level. This is practical. Now let's go on to this other area because it dovetails nicely. Brother, what time am I supposed to finish? Aaron, am I? All right, 1.15. That's great. All right, we're going to talk about conflict and contention or conflict because you can see how communication is part of this, right? Now, first thing we're going to do is I'm I'm just going to talk about where conflict comes from. You remember that passage in James chapter 4? Where do wars and rumors of wars come from? They come from yourself. Now, let's just look at at some of the uh, uh, sources of conflict, and I want to move forward here because I think this would be a little more... Appropriate. Yes. Proverbs chapter tw- uh, 10, verse 12. might want to turn to Proverbs because we're going to spend some time here reading these passages. 
Where do conflicts come from? All right. 10 verse 12, it says the following. Hatred stirs up strife and love, but love covers all sins. Did you know that sometimes in marital situations, after perhaps years, there have been so much injury, so much unresolved injury, that spouses will meet with us. And as they talk, you, you, you can tell it from the word go. One, we're at the restaurant. One sits over here and the other, if they could sit any further off the bench, they would. And there is this great chasm between. And they kind of sit so there's a, you know, just a little bit of an angle. So there's a little shoulder that you, if you're going to look at me, you see my shoulder and not my face. You know what? You've got big problems. And generally what you've got is you've got hatred. Well, I'm a Christian. It's like coffee. I don't get hateful. Yeah, you do. And it's easy to do. And you get hateful because of unresolved problems, unresolved words, unyielded, unsurrendered spirits to the Lord Jesus. And that produces hatefulness. And that causes strife. It's hard for us to acknowledge that. But you know what's even bigger than that? Is this one pride. Look in chapter 13, verse 10. It says the following there. It says... By pride comes nothing but strife. Listen, pride, by definition, is not just thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. It's not an overestimation of your God-given gift or abilities or talents. That's part of it because Satan, it says, he looked at himself and he really admired his beauty. But pride ultimately expresses itself in an independent spirit of God. That was um, defined for us in the passages where Satan said, I will be like the Most High God, independent uh, of power and authority and accountability. But actually, the guy that really gives us this bird's eye view is Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, in his testimony of chapter 4 of Daniel, says the following words. It's in the last paragraph. He says, you are able to bring the pride low. That's in the last verse of the paragraph. And in the middle of the paragraph, still talking about pride, he says, and you are able to deal with those who raise their fist and say, what are you doing? When you say that phrase, like, God, what are you doing? What you're really saying is, I think I could do it better than you, and I think you should just stand down for a little bit. And it's an independence, you see. Now, pride in a marriage is a killer. Pride causes contention. How do you know that, Steve? Well, if you were to take a stroll with me through my hall of shame, which turns out to be pretty big, you would find that those times when I did not want to be wrong and was so wrong, I would feel I could show you those episodes where my back would get, my neck would get stiff, the hair would stand up, on, and I would just lock my jaw and I'd say, I don't think so. You know what? Those moments are pride. They kill marriages. You want to doom your marriage? You remain in a posture of pride. It shows up in several ways. Always having the last word. Right? That's a big one. My opinion is the only opinion that counts. I've thought about it 15 dozen ways, and I'm always coming up with the right answer. I must be right. Let me tell you, if you think and do the calculations 15 times and you get the same answer, you're using the wrong calculator. Okay? Think about that. It shows up in, in always having to, to say the last word. It's always having to win the argument. Those kinds of uh, um, features are evidence of this independent, I am above you like spirit. And I tell you, I've had them all. I've had them all. Kills children, kills marriages. You know what pride does? Drives you spiritually insane. How do you know that? You ever heard of Nebuchadnezzar? What happened to him? Huh? Out in the field on his back, sleeping with the animals, skin, feathers, fingernails. Drives you insane. It does that to you. 
Brothers, I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you, as you go along in your Christian life, God is going to bring you to multiple points where your pride will be dismantled. Oh, let him wash your feet. Let him wash your feet. All right, let's move on. Wrath. Wrathful man stirs up strife. That's Proverbs 15:18. Where does all this come from? He says this, a wrathful man stirs up strife, that, and he who is slow to anger allays contention. What does that tell you? It's a poetic device again, using the balance of the Hebrew poetry to show you the first sentence is also being defined by the second sentence. And what he says is this, anger causes contention, problems, conflict. I want to ask you in this room, how many of you have ever been able to master the statement, righteous anger? <laughs> Anybody? I'd like to. I have. I have had maybe one moment in my life where I thought I was righteously angry, and you know what? I was prideful about it. <laughs> Didn't work too well. Okay. You see what I'm saying? It's a very difficult thing to come because why? I have so much flesh in Steve that dealing with anger in the right way is sort of a foreign language for me. Have you, when I was first married, Janet, we were having premarital counseling, and it was nothing like what we've been led to do today. But one of the questions that was so penetrating was when the brother said to my wife, Steve, Janet, what's Steve's greatest problem? I thought she would think at least 10 minutes. It was like 10 milliseconds. Oh, that's easy. He's, he's got a temper problem. I don't either. Like you talking? That's terrible. Never heard of that in my life. Would you? Oh, has that been true? One day she said to me, very kind. She's a very polite woman. She said, "Sometimes we don't know if we're going to meet the calm Steve or the ill-tempered Steve when you come home." Oh. Don't you hate it when the mirror is so clean and crisp? I mean, you look at, this is what happens, brothers and sisters. God uses your spouse like the mirror of his word. And sometimes you'll see yourself reflected in your spouse and you go, oh, I don't look like that. Oh, never. And you just cast blame. Or you see that reflection and you go, oh, God, you must be wrong. Seriously, can't you get a better quality mirror? Right? And we deny and we defer and we try to excuse and get rid of it and just don't. Just stop the madness. And when that moment happens and you see that your anger and wrath is just dominating you, why don't you do the first thing? Get on your knees in the closet and confess to God that you can't fix yourself and you've got a big problem. There's nothing like brokenness that makes God tender. And by the way, it melts your spouse's heart too. Right? Okay, let's move on. A couple other things. I, 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 this, is hard, this is hard stuff for me because it's so, it's so me. Contrary. First, uh, chapter 16. This is one of my favorites, actually. It goes like this. A perverse man. That actually can be uh, the root word means to turn over, to cause conflict to be twisting, you know, contrary. Um, it says, a perverse man sows strife, a whisperer, that's another idea, separates intimate friends. You know, this kind of this idea of not just gossip, but sort of that planting seeds, you know. You ever do that? Event happens, you go, oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. You don't say it very loud. You just say it loud enough so someone would say, well, how would you do it? Well, glad you asked. Right? You ever, do you ever do that? All right, so... This kind of contrary person is one that, that just has a mechanism of planting, we, we say, stirs the pot, right? Are you a pot stirrer? I'm, I'm telling you, that's not a spiritual gift. You think it is, it's not. In fact, I would say to you, it's more like eh, fruit of the flesh. That's what that is. Now, there's another one here that goes right along with that, and that's number six here. It's the mocker. 
in the scripture it says, and well, it's in chapter 22. I'll read it again. It says this, um, chapter 22, verse 10. Cast out the scoffer and contention will leave. Scoffer, in the New Testament, there's the, word, the same word, Septuagint, Greek, same thing, is in that passage in Peter. And it says in Peter, and the scoffer of this age will say, where is the Lord's coming? Everything has been like this since the beginning. The word scoffer is in the text. And so you get the idea that scoffer is somebody who's really being critical and sort of mocking, sort of, I don't think so, you know, that kind of thing. Now, scoffer and contrary are very related to each other. One is, they're definitely distinct, but, but they kind of dovetail, they kind of overlap. And I want you to know the scoffer, and I use the term critical person, only produces one thing. It's not productivity. It's not edification. It's contention. And if you have that disposition where you feel that you're the God's gift to the church to be uh, the scoffer, then you're wrong. It usually is said this way. Well, I have the gift of discernment. You know what that means? It means I can tell you everything that you're doing wrong. I want you to know, if you've got the gift of discernment, that generally means you're able to tell the difference between what is true and what is false, between what is holy and unholy, not being able to label everybody else's problems. That's not what discernment is. What, what that is, is the guy that's critical and the guy that's a mocker, scoffer. It has never been a spiritual gift and never will be a spiritual gift. It is a play of the enemy. It's a portion of the flesh. Brothers and sisters... This is where conflict comes from. We've got these things. They're called, it's the heart. Jesus described it as the evil heart. And out of that heart comes the corruptions through our mouth. That's what defiles a man. Do you remember that speech? And the only way that can be handled as a Christian when there's new life and new creation is the Spirit of God begins to dismantle these aspects of the flesh that have deep tentacles and roots in the soul. And he does it through his word. He does it through you know, the spirit of God highlighting it. He does it through bringing mirrors in front of you. And all the time he gives you the vitality and energy to have those things changed. And that's what marriage brings to the table. It's a catalyst to the process, isn't it? Does it hurt? Yes. Is it necessary? Yes. Will you submit to it? I don't know. No. Let's do. All right, let's, let's go on. All right, so uh, we'll figure out where I am here. Selfishness. Number seven. It's the last one on our, our look into where contention comes from. Selfishness. Now, this verse here is uh, um, in, what is it, chapter... Oh, where did I... I can't remember where I got that one. Oh, yeah, verse 28. Uh, chapter 28, 22. Do not desire the delicacies of a miser or selfish man. That's another way to translate that. Now, notice how he does things. Nor desire his delicacies, for as he thinks in his heart, so he is. In other words, he thinks selfishly. That's what he really is. And he'll say with his mouth, oh, eat, drink, have seconds. They're small. Take five. And what it's to say? He says, but his heart is not with you. And then the passage says, you will vomit up what you've eaten. Selfishness kills. Selfishness kills. I'll never forget, I was dealing with a couple. They were, they were arguing in front of me. And it was, at my, it was at my kitchen table. And boom, boom, boom. And everything they said was so self-centered. Finally, I just said, you're the two most self-centered people I've ever met. And they went, oh, 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 oh surely not. I said, surely so. Surely so. Self-centeredness kills you. How does it show? It shows up sometimes in expectations. You know, this idea that I expect you to, to know what I want. Who wouldn't want a servant like that? Yes, I have here your, your, your tea and your, and, and, and your biscuit because I knew you would like that. I mean, who wouldn't want that? That is not a wife and that is not a husband. 
Those are expectations which actually can kill. That's the ultimate expression of selfishness. You ever, you ever have an argument like that? Well, I thought you should know. Okay, let me back up. When they, you said that phrase, I thought you should know, that's the one you need to get rid of. Right, that's not fair. That's not right. right? That, that's the one that kills you. Self-centeredness. It's, it's a deadly, deadly, deadly thing. We have to die to self. If you're going to come after me, you're going to have to deny yourself. Self must go. The old man was crucified with him. He no longer has staying power. He no longer has authority to demand your allegiance. He no longer is the one that's on the throne. You have a new master, a new king, a new person on the throne. His name is Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, who is benevolent, kind, gracious, uh, tender, and long-suffering, merciful. This is the one that's on your throne. And he therefore will dictate the activities and the thinkings of the new man, Christ in you. That's how it works. And this verse here where it describes the Lord Jesus, who had no thought to himself, no selfish ambitions, no interest that would be for his benefit. No, no, no. He had a low mind. He emptied himself, took that. We talked about it yesterday, that form of the bondservant. Marriage is where the God of selfishness must die. Okay? I hate to tell you that, but it's true. It's really true. Now, what we need to do here is I need to move ahead in my slides here, and I can't quite do it. I mentioned to you about expectations, and that's just a summary of imposing your restrictions upon someone else. And Psalm 62, verse, uh, verse 5 says, My hope is in the Lord, or my expectation is in the Lord. I, I, I look to the Lord to actually satisfy and no one else, right? Now, that means in a spousal relationship, I ask the Lord to, to bring it to her mind. I, I ask the Lord, I put my hope in Him, I depend upon the Lord to, to bring things about. And so, so does the woman. Now, having said that, I want to move to this area called resolution. See, what I found is that couples will have spats, and then they won't seek to resolve it. They'll, like that one couple I described, you pretend like nothing happened. No, 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 no. God doesn't get, let you get off that easy. There are two scriptures that are very important here, and one of them is, of course, the famous the famous Matthew 18 passage, which says, If your brother sins against you, go tell him your, his fault, and then first be reconciled to one another, then come and offer... Oh, excuse me, that was Matthew 5, I apologize. The Matthew 5 passage, that you must, first of all, make sure that it's right with your brother, right? Oh, I'm sorry, I had that correct. Um, now... I want you to know we, we can't let that go. And then, of course, the other passage is if you have something, a brother has something against you, but if you have something against your brother, you go and deal with it, right? That's the Matthew 18 passage. Now, those two passages really don't allow you to get off the hook. The Matthew 5 passage says if somebody has something against you, and the Matthew 18 passage, if you have something against another, you still have to solve it. Now, that's talking about brothers. We usually think about that as someone outside the family. But what if that Christian is living in your same house and shares your same bed? Well, that even applies even more. I tell you, that's why I buy t uh, cell phones for everybody. Why do I do that? So I can text them and ask them to forgive me before we break bread. You ever think about that? Very helpful. I sent out this group text. Dad was really wrong this morning. Would you please forgive me? Gracie uses Janet's phone. I forgive you, Daddy. So we don't have an option, right? We need to deal with this in the right way, and we need to deal with it with one another. I mentioned yesterday, don't take your case of, of, of discord and go to somebody else. Don't go to your mom. Don't go to your dad. Don't go to your brother. Don't go to your aunt. Don't go to your uncle. Don't go to your sister. Go to your spouse. So many people will, the uh, first time that I'll hear about a problem, they'll tell me what their husband did or what their wife did. And I say, did you talk to her about it? He goes, no, that's what you're to do. I said, no, that's what you're going to do. See, it, it applies. All we're doing is taking scriptures that apply to the actually church setting and we apply them to our marriage. Now, what is necessary for this whole process? 
brokenness. And I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about brokenness. Brokenness means, when you look up the word in the Old Testament, it means broken into pieces. Now, there are many ways to break things. My children, they are, are wonderful dish breakers when they load and unload the dishwasher. Did this ever happen to any other fathers here? I mean, they, you know, they take the dish and bam! Oh, oh look how easy we just replaced that, you know. And so they break dishes, and I'll come home from a trip like this weekend, and then I'll have it sitting on the counter. They'll have the crazy glue right there, and they say, go at it, Dad. So i become a real, i got a Ph.D. in crazy glue. I'm, <laughs> my fingers don't even get stuck anymore. <laughs> on occasion, they'll bring a piece of uh, dishes that come up, and it's like in 500 pieces. They, I don't know, they swept it up, they put it in a bag, they put it on the thing and put the crazy glue there. And, I, and then I come in, I said, hey, what happened to the dish? We're thinking you could fix that one. I'm going, I'm thinking you're wrong. Because did you notice there's like 500 pieces there? I can't do that. That's the word in the Old Testament, broken, broken into pieces, that you cannot assemble it back together. And that's the kind of person God says, I love those who have a broken and contrite heart. Contrite has the same idea. What does that mean? What he means is this. I love it when your heart is so undone that you can't fix yourself. And I will fix it for you. Now, when we're in a marital situation and we have conflict, one of the hardest things to do is to actually allow your heart to be convicted about your contribution to the problem so much so that you're broken in pieces. Usually it's always like this. Well, I was wrong, but so were you. Seriously, you just, just, maybe, just think about it. And it's not really a confession. It's an accusation. Well, I may, uh, you know, I might have 90% here, but you've got your 10%. And your 10% needs to be looked at. Isn't that right, Steve? No, it's not right. That's what they asked me. They asked me, don't you think so? No, I don't. Do you remember, and, and it, it's probably best if we turn to the passage, and, I, uh, and I'll end with this before lunch. It's Luke, I believe it's chapter 17. Oh, sorry, chapter 18, verse 9. Now, he spoke this to um, those who tried to justify themselves. And so he tells a parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the story goes like this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Now, the temple mount in Jerusalem, it has a mosque on it. It doesn't have a temple, or the Herod's temple. And there's a place in Jerusalem called the, um, it's a museum. It's right by the shrine of the book where they have the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they have this model. It's as big as this room of outdoor model of the Jerusalem at the time of Christ. And so you could kind of see the temple and Herod's thing and where the courts would be and where people would stand. So it's kind of, for me, it's a good visual picture. And I can see the Lord Jesus. He appears to be perhaps somewhat near this particular location. And he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. I wonder if there actually was two men when he was telling the story. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Uh, get this. Forgive me. I, I like to dramatize this. It's great for family devotions. God, I thank thee. He's probably Shakespearean. I thank thee that, that, that I am not like other men. Can you hear it? Extortioners unjust people adulterers I spit on you I added that in the text it's not there. <laughs> or even as this tax collector standing to my left I added that too it's not there but you see the arrogance of this it's everybody else's fault now he says this I fast mind you twice a week what does that mean you're really malnourished. <laughs> I give tithes of all that I possess, which is what he's saying. He says, I do more than the law. So you should be impressed. That's what he's saying. Now, the tax collector, he's standing afar off, would not so much raise his eyes to heaven, contrasting to the, to the Pharisee. 
And he says this. I love this. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, very important you notice this definite article. In the, in the, Engl- in the New King James, it doesn't do it justice, but it's there in the original. It says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's actually the sinner. Right? A sinner means generic, anybody. The sinner means I'm the guy. Right? So this is what he's saying. God, be merciful to me. I'm the sinner. You hear that? Listen, there, according to this parable, there's a lot of sinners up there. And namely, that joker over there is accusing everybody else of their problems. Right? But he's saying, as far as I'm concerned, I'm the sinner here today. It's me. Now, that's the attitude of brokenness we're after. I have never had an argument or conflict with my wife in which I have not sinned. Have you? Anybody? Anybody brave enough to say that? I didn't think so. But my point is simply this. There is contribution that I have made to the problem. And I want to come to a point in my own heart where I recognize that my sin is enough sin to condemn me to death. To condemn me to death. And if I ever begin to sound like, well, I did this, but you did that too. I fall under the indictment of the words of the Lord Jesus and I'm not broken. I'm stiff-necked. You say, well, Steve, my husband ran off with this woman and did this and stole the money. and I, I get it. I get it. There's sin. I'm not saying we don't identify. You meant it for evil. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about saying, Lord, even in that state, what would you have me to do? Search me and try me. And see if there be any wicked way in me. Oh, that's the broken heart that God is looking for. That sets up a relationship that can be healed. If both, not one, but if both parties come to that conclusion. It's like two children that got in a huge tassel and finally the parent comes in and separates them. And they're so both embarrassed at their terrible behavior, they don't even care to look at what the other guy did because they know they were so wrong. That's the posture that is necessary. It's brokenness. It's broken. David, he could have said, and God, it was not my fault that Sheba shouldn't have been taking a bath at midnight. I'm just a man. Did he say that? No, when Nathan came to him and he said, he said, and, uh, he said, you are the man. What did David say? Did he go, well, it was really, it was really, you know, God should have kept more cloud cover that night. I, I could, the moon was too bright. Did he say, he said, I have sinned. That's what he said. And when he writes Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, what does he say in that psalm? I have sinned and I can and I was born in sin and I'm like sin and it's and it's all in me and you can you got to fix me cuz I can't fix me. I'm undone, I'm broken and for some reason I don't understand that's the kind of person you love to be with and here I am I'm overqualified. That's what we're after. When you got that posture of soul, the orientation of life now God has someone that he loves to be with. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. I use the heavenly celestial bodies as my living room furniture. But I tell you, there's one finite spot in all the universe I'd rather be. It's with somebody who's broken. That's the person I like to hang out with. Can you imagine a marriage that is having such feuding and such conflict and hatred and, and people, you, 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 you try to injure each other, so every card you ever got, you throw in the wastebasket. This, this happens in life, and people are doing this to each other. And finally, you come to a point and you break under God's conviction and say, I did that, and I purposely hated back, and I purposely retaliated, and I purposely yelled and screamed, and I purposely swore at them, and I purposely said in my heart, I wish you were dead, and I purposely did all those things, and God, if that person was never in my life, that is enough to put me into the shackles of hell forever. I repent. Whatever they've done, that's your business. See that? One of the hardest things in the Christian life to do. But it is necessary. 
All right, we'll stop here and we'll continue after lunch. Father, thank you for this time. We've had to open the scriptures and think about some of these things, but Lord, wow, the application of these things is supernatural. The Spirit of the Lord must bring the tenderness of soul to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father, for the food. Thank you for this assembly and being gracious to me. Thank you for the attentiveness. Thank you, Father, that we can fellowship around our Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, that we, we, we have this kind of family. In Jesus' name, amen.